heavily, I'm a clown. What's going on, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of the Bitcoin Echo Chamber. This will be episode 16. Isn't that crazy? I can't believe that I've already been doing this show for 16 straight weeks. So, a little bit of a disclaimer. I hemmed and hawed about this episode because I will tell you right up front, uh, the audio quality is not very good. It's a little bit distorted, and it's really difficult to hear uh, a lot of what my friend Rahan has to say. Rahan lives in India, and he speaks very good English, but he does have a heavy accent, and it can be difficult to understand uh, what he's saying, especially if you're if you're not used to it. Also, the first 15 minutes are just particularly bad because uh, Rahan and I figured out after we killed his video feed, we had much better audio quality. So if you can make it through the first 15 minutes after that, you should at least be able to hear everything Rahan has to say. You know, I spent almost the entire day today, it took me literally all day, it was awful, uh, transcribing this episode out into text uh, in a Google Doc, and I'm going to accompany that down in the description below. So if you have trouble at any point in time understanding what Rahan has to say, uh, you can refer to the transcription and you can hear what he has to say there. There were a couple parts that I wasn't quite able to make out after working through this episode all day long today, but I think I got the gist of everything he had to say. So if that idea of distorted audio turns you off, you know, you can go ahead and, and close this episode out right now if it's not for you. I totally understand. Uh, this will not be like a thing going forward. I'm just, I had a great conversation with Rahan, and we talked about India and Bitcoin in India, and uh, I got a very unique perspective from him because this is something that I don't normally hear from uh, people, you know, with his point of view on, on Bitcoin and what it's like in his country. So I think for those of you that stick around and listen to this episode, I think you'll find it awesome. Uh, but anyway, let's get right to it. This episode of the Bitcoin Echo Chamber podcast is sponsored by WTFHappenedIn1971.com. The economics meme taking the world by storm where all of us are trying to find out the answer to what the heck happened in 1971. WTF 1971 also has a merch store now. You can find it at WTF-1971.creator-spring.com. I'll post a link to that down in the show notes if you want to check it out. Thanks for the support. Rahan, how are you doing, man? Yeah, I'm doing great. How about you? I'm glad to have. I'm doing quite well. I'm glad to have you on the show today, man. Uh, I've followed you on Twitter for a while, and I know that you currently live in India. Uh, and I wanted to do something a little different on today's show. I wanted, I wanted to have a different perspective because um, normally I think a lot of the people that come on my show and talk are from the Western mm -hmm. world, and we don't really. We don't really get much uh, insight on Bitcoin, you know, in, in places like India. And I know you have a lot to say on the matter, um, so I brought you on to kind of talk about that. So if you could start us off, could you tell us a little bit about uh, how you found out about Bitcoin and how, what got you interested in it? Yeah, sure. Uh, first of all, thank you so much for the opportunity here. I love that you have chosen me to represent Bitcoin from India. That's a huge achievement in itself, I believe. And... Of course, so I got involved with Bitcoin in around 2016, very recently. I started working for this company, which is based out of Mumbai, who deals, uh, there's a platform called searchtrade.com. So this is basically a search engine where you get paid in Bitcoin 
if you search for anything. So they have APIs from different search engines and they have integrated and created a platform where you can search for anything and get paid in Satoshi. So yeah, that's about it, but they are not functional anymore due to the legal issues we have in this country. So currently the government stand on Bitcoin is neither legal nor illegal. So they are in midway somewhere. They have appointed a community who is drafting a bill which is supposed to be presented at the parliament. And then they'll take a call on how to take it forward. But it's likely that the current government that we have here is planning to ban cryptocurrency. So they have given a statement which says that it is not legal tender. And they have had a crackdown on all the major exchanges that we have in the country. So we had around eight to nine exchanges here in India, which was basically dealing with conversions of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies into rupees, Indian rupees. And that is not possible at the current stage as we are talking. So now the only exchanges that are functional are peer-to-peer -peer exchanges. So the bank have cut off the financial uh, support that they give to the crypto exchanges. So the exchanges don't have the financial support from the bank. So the only functional exchanges are one which has peer-to-peer -peer trading involved. And apart from that, banks are also sending out emails. I have received email from, I have banks in two major, I have accounts in two major banks here. So I've received email from bad, both the bank accounts saying not to get involved into dealing of Bitcoin, Litecoin or any other cryptocurrency as it is financially not advisable. And that's very yeah, interesting. So banks actually make you now when you go to bank to create new bank accounts, they make you sign up uh, terms and conditions. It, it, it involves that they can freeze your account anytime if you get involved in trading cryptocurrency. So quite a few banks have started doing this in India now. Wow. Okay. So um, let me let me recap some of the things that you said there. Um, so you, you mentioned that the, the government doesn't have a very positive stance on cryptocurrency and it's it's getting so bad that they've actually shut down all of the exchanges in India with the exception of the peer-to-peer -peer exchanges. And you said now the banks are uh, sending emails out to their customers and, and making it so that they can't use cryptocurrency at all or at least telling them not to. And you know that there might be legal consequence there uh, because of the terms and conditions that they're making you agree to as a customer of their bank. Did I catch all that? Yes. So let's let's start with um, the, the Indian government. Well, why do you think that the Indian government is, is coming down so hard on cryptocurrency? I know that they've said that it's a Ponzi, um, but what's the real reason? What do you think? So I think that the government as such, it doesn't really understand the concept of Bitcoin and blockchain and they don't have people currently with them who can explain them how things work. So their immediate response to anything they don't understand is to ban it. So the government has internet happened back then they were not taken very positively so yeah of course I have any, yeah. Uh, hello can you hear me yeah I'm, I'm having trouble right now you're kind of lagging a little bit I think you're back now am I audible now 
Yeah. Yeah, I can hear so you. So most now. of the decision makers have a trouble understanding Bitcoin. So I think that is the possible reason anything they cannot understand is easily termed as and because the see then for the government doubts it even further for because they want to somehow they think they are responsible to secure people with their financial decisions and they are saying by banning them people they'll give people the ability to not lose money over the night but people do it all the time at the bombay stock exchange another stock market that we have in india but that is completely fine and it's something that they can then not fool with that i believe so yeah you had mentioned to me before uh that mumbai is actually the financial capital of india uh so i'd imagine you know living in mumbai you you see a lot of people that go out and try to make fortunes and things that they don't understand and then end up losing a lot of their money uh or the little money that they might have on speculating on on things like stocks um but you say that you think that the the government just doesn't understand bitcoin what do you think that the the yeah. step forward is there how do you think that you can help better educate the indian government on on understanding this thing so currently what i'm doing is of course i'm using social media and internet as a platform to explain and to reach out to maximum people that i can and also apart from me there are other people who are part of the cryptocurrency community in india who have like uh, legal firms registered exchanges registered they are trying to reach out the finance minister the prime minister of the country continuously on twitter sorry they have uh, a campaign going on on twitter which says india wants crypto hashtag so yeah a lot of attempts are made for uh, to government to get attention from the government officials every time some country accepts bitcoin or there is any positive news on bitcoin and blockchain as a whole there's always a hashtag in india again trending saying okay that country has accepted bitcoin when are we doing it so now the community whole started to ask the finance minister and the prime minister by saying why are you trying to stop india from because india is major companies in the it industry so you have most of the indians working in microsoft you have most of the indians working for google so by from their point of view indians have been a part of all the revolutions i revolutions we have seen in the it industry so blockchain is one of them and yeah so they basically asking their authority saying that why can't you just draft the committee and get the law passed because in the course the case is currently in the supreme court of india and it is in the court from last one and a half years no judgment passed they said they have a committee but then the elections we currently having the general elections the country every time we have the elections is the largest elections on the planet earth india is the fun, largest functional democracy on the planet so the government is mostly involved with the elections currently once they get done with the elections after then they saying they'll announce something on bitcoin but it's likely to be negative that's interesting um you know i i have a lot of questions that i could ask there about uh just democracy but i don't know that i want to go down that road yet i i want to ask you you know you you live in india so obviously you have a lot of peers um who are indian and 
how do they feel about Bitcoin? You know, are, are you a diamond in the rough? Are you one of the few people who gets it? Or do you feel like a lot of your peers understand this? No, I think I'm one of the people who gets it. A lot of people don't understand it. In fact, a lot of people around me think that I've made a lot of money in Bitcoin and then I'm secretly a millionaire and I'm hiding a lot of wealth somewhere. But that's not how it works. So yeah, a lot of people in India have no clue how Bitcoin works or what Bitcoin is. For a lot of people in India, Bitcoin is like a stock where they can invest money and make more money. That's how you, they look at it. Hmm. Um, do, do you think that there's a need for, for people in India to have a strong store of value like Bitcoin? I, I don't know what, um, what value propositions you ascribe to Bitcoin, but for me, one of the biggest is the store of value. You know, it's digital gold. Uh, do you think that that's a narrative that would resonate with the Indian people? Yeah, of course. And countries like India need, need it because if you have been following news uh, for I mean, in 2000, I don't remember the year, but a few years back we had something called demonetization where basically the government suddenly the money that you currently have with you is now illegal tender and you're supposed to get it changed from the nearby bank. And then with a fraction of a second, all the money that everyone had in their home wallets stored anywhere all the cash that they had was was not legal tender anymore they were supposed to get it exchanged from nearby bank they said that they did it wow. to somehow manage the black money that we have around people were trying to escape taxes but then it resulted into more than 50 deaths the country was not fully functional for weeks without money people were dying in atm queues people committed suicides because they were not able to manage their financial transaction Basically, there was a lot of chaos in the country. And the whole point that somebody has, someone has the power to do so is very scary. So demonetization is one of the best examples you can give to people how the state managing your store of value is a bad idea. So people of power will always abuse power. So yeah, I guess India needs it the most. That's really interesting. Um, and, and you said that the reason that the government gave for this demonetization uh, for making all these people's savings illegal tender was that they were trying to prevent money laundering and tax evasion? Yes, that's exactly what they said. But then later they realized that more than 99.99% of money in circulation was returned to the banks. Then they switched on this statement and then they said that they were trying to push, push digital payments. And they just changed their statement there. And, and the opposition, of course, took a dig on the uh, party in power. And they just said that now we want to promote Digital India and they want to have faster payments, quick payments. They even the prime minister of the country even had a full page advertising for a company called Paytm, which is involved in digital payments. So they directly changed the narrative to saying we want to push digital payments and therefore we did what we did. But demonetization was an economic failure and uh, economists throughout the world declared it saying that it didn't make any sense and the whole activity cost some millions of dollars to the government and, and it took lives of around 50 to 100 people and didn't bring any, any sense to anyone. Hmm. So does it, you know, with that, with that narrative in mind, now that I understand that story, does it concern you that 
the Indian government might take the same approach towards cryptocurrencies, especially Bitcoin, because Bitcoin, as we know, is uncensorable. You know, it doesn't uh, discriminate against anyone making transactions and the network can't be controlled. Do you think that that might be deep down what actually scares the Indian government and why they want it? Uh, I don't think the Indian government still understand what Bitcoin can do. If they would understand it, they'll ban it over the night. So they're still trying to figure out if some way they can tax it or they can make money out of it or they can control it in some way. Once they clearly get their heads around and figure out that they cannot do anything about Bitcoin, it's 100% uncensorable, then I am pretty pretty sure that they'll bring a strong ban against it. Hmm. That's interesting. I, I think that I agree with you. I think that most governments in the world, if they fully understood Bitcoin, they would ban it overnight. Yeah, um, what, do, what do you think that that would look like for people? What do you think that that would look like for people? Do you think that they would be forced to abandon Bitcoin? No, do you sorry. think that there will be like an underground resistance? No, there are of course be underground resistance. So it will just delay the mass adoption. I feel the government will take part. It will make sure that it will try to stop mass adoption as much as they can. But of course, when people will need it, they'll use it. Government tries to ban Bitcoin for 100%. They will not be able to do anything about the blockchain, the Bitcoin blockchain, I mean. So they will not be able to resist people from using the internet with our browser. They can do, there are a lot of ways to go around about it. So people will still be able to access Bitcoin. They'll still be able to create wallet. They'll still be able to make transactions. And the majority of Indians who are working outside of India, they keep sending back money to their families in India. Indian, you'll find Indian labors in US, UK, Dubai, Saudi. You go to any any country in the world, you'll find Indians there. So they are all working and they are all sending back the money. They are charged conversion rate. The Western Union charges them a fees. So all of that goes away when they realize that's how Bitcoin works. So I think that will help Bitcoin a lot. And those people in the need will be. I think that that's a very powerful thing that people often don't talk about with Bitcoin as much. Um, I know at least here in the United States, we don't think about overseas um, payments as much because we don't tend to have uh, family members that go overseas and work and send money back to us here uh, because we're, we're fortunate mm -hmm. enough to have a really strong economy in the, in the U.S. But I know oftentimes for people in India, it might be difficult to find work, so they have to go and find work elsewhere, and then they send that money back home to their family. Um, and I, I think Bitcoin is a really powerful use case for that that, that people often don't think about. Yeah, I, I agree to you 100%. Because for countries like, for most of the countries in Asia, they'll realize that value proposition of Bitcoin very soon, I guess. You just have to wait for there, because Western Union keep, keep bring, keeps bringing even new regulations in place. So they keep, every time there's a new regulation, they push a bunch of people out. So they keep doing that, they keep pushing them to Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. So um, tell me a little bit more about these these peer-to-peer -peer Indian Bitcoin exchanges. Um, how do they work? Have, have, have you ever used one? Yeah, yeah, I've used one. So most of the exchanges in India, once there was a crackdown, the government officials were there. Most of, a lot of exchanges, founders, other people involved were arrested, and all of that happened. After that, I guess 
they took to, they took a break for one or two months and they all started with peer to peer exchanges so the concept of peer to peer exchanges didn't exist until the government decided to ban exchanges only after they banned exchanges this exchanges formed a committee amongst themselves they got a financial aid and a legal aid i mean then with a bunch of lawyers they figured out a way that working out on peer to peer exchanges platform will still be legal and they'll not need bank for financial settlements and then they started it so most of the exchanges in india are still functional but the volume has tremendously gone gone down and not just because of the regulations the government has fought but also because of the market that we are currently so in comparison to the volume that we had in december back then last year now uh, sorry i mean last to last year now the volume is almost 10% of that wow and um when you say they're peer to peer does that mean that they're are they done all online or do you have to meet with the person and trade with trade them like rupees in person how does that work no so you have to do it online so you deposit your bitcoin on the platform then they receive the confirm payment and then the platform sign of the final transaction so they they act as a middleman in between two of you but you deposit money into each other's account directly and then you transfer bitcoin from my to platforms and platforms to uh, other person's account so they are not completely trustless you have to transfer bitcoin to their address and then they transfer bitcoin to other address so yeah they are trustless parties and so you had mentioned um about the banks that were sending out these letters and and making their customers sign these terms and conditions agreements and um that they had been also there'd been pressure coming from the banks on these cryptocurrency exchanges do you think that the banks are doing that uh to protect themselves or do you think that that's the indian government putting pressure on the banks to try to get them to clamp down on on cryptocurrency use so the central bank in india is called reserve bank of india rbi so i think the government and the rbi are both putting pressure on banks here to do that and i think they'll keep doing that until they have a final committee and then they they take a legal stand on it and till that time i think we will be in this phase where the banks will keep sending out this notices to customers to avoid investing in bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies because a lot of people started investing in december 2017 when bitcoin was mm-hmm. at peaks So now a lot of people in India and I guess almost every country have realized that Bitcoin is falling and they all think that Bitcoin will die in few years. But then people who really understand the concept and they're for a long game, they know that how the markets function. So yeah, it's going to be really interesting to see uh, here in the next year or so as we get closer to the having mm-hmm. and Bitcoin starts to return to its price levels of 2017 when everyone thought it was a bubble and thought it was. popped and thought it was going to die um how the world is going to react i think again you will see bitcoin in most of the major news media houses they'll start calling people known people in the bitcoin community for talks and they'll start discussing mm. bitcoin they'll again make videos explaining bitcoin i think once you see bull market back they'll all create lot of content about bitcoin which will be consumed on the internet on from the tv and people we will hear we will hear about bitcoin for the first time and i guess that will help us push push mass adoption so as as we are near to the bull run you'll see a lot of more people realizing about reading about bitcoin for the first time and that is very helpful i mean
So you mentioned just there um, that it will help push Bitcoin towards mass adoption. Now, I want to know, in your mind, what does Bitcoin mass adoption look like? What will what will that do for the world? I mean, how will people use Bitcoin in a world where everyone has Bitcoin? So this is something that I usually say to people when I'm explaining them the concept of separation of state and money. So what I tell them is, if you, if you see how the government works, they cannot give you good hospitals and good roads. How do you trust them to give you good economical systems? Because they are people and people are corrupt. Their positions, they're powerful people and power, where there is power, there is abuse of power. So Bitcoin cannot do that because Bitcoin is a code and code will do as you command. I think as an economic, because here in India, people don't have an, or anywhere in the world, people don't have an option. There is no alternative to the local currency that I have in US. You don't have any option apart from US dollars. In, um, in India, you don't have any options apart from Indian rupees. So I think mass adoption will look like people have an alternative now. They can rely on the government or they can rely on Bitcoin. Bitcoin will act as a substitute. The, I don't think so the fiat will die. They'll still be there. But a lot of people will treat Bitcoin as a monetary option. People will, just like how we have options to decide our language, our religion, similarly we'll have options to decide what money we want to use. I think that that's really thoughtful. Uh, I, I think some of the smartest people that are looking at this space are are seeing that that fiat currencies probably won't necessarily die, at least certainly not right away from Bitcoin. And we, we probably won't see global hyperinflation like we see in, in countries like Venezuela. But it is really likely that um, as people start to see Bitcoin as an alternative to traditional banking and traditional finance, that more and more people decide to make the switch and, and gradually move away. And we see a, a slow um, attrition of the people who use fiat currencies and and who prefer this newer decentralized system. Um, and, you know, I think it'll be really interesting if, if we ever get to the point where where governments have to look at this and and say, well, everyone is using this, you know, can we really force all these people uh, to come back? It might not even be possible. I think governments with dictatorships like uh, Korea and Saudi will try to force people to not use Bitcoin. But I think they'll fail. They'll fail tremendously and they'll somehow push people even more to use Bitcoin by trying them not to use Bitcoin. So, But majority of the governments in the world will somehow will have to allow people because they'll figure out that there's no option, there's nothing much they can do about it. They'll have to allow people to use Bitcoin and then US dollars at the same time. So people will use them as two different wallets with two different currencies. A lot of the people who travel around the world usually have euros and dollars in the same wallet. So they will have Bitcoin and euros and dollars and then carry around. And I think especially, you know, when, when Bitcoin will especially be powerful is like what you said when uh, the Indian people were subject to demonetization. Yeah. Uh, to, to have that happen, you know, it must be a very scary experience. But to, to see it happen in real time and to know, you know, to go and check your Bitcoin and see, oh, well, my Bitcoin is still there and it's, it's still worth just as much as it was yesterday or maybe even more. Uh, but I can't spend my rupees, but I can still spend my Bitcoin. I think that that would be a really powerful experience. Yes, absolutely. I think demonetization should be the most talked about thing to push Bitcoin by the community that we currently have. But I don't see a lot of people using uh, demonetization as an example of what the government can do. 
India is the second largest country in the world by population. So, of course, I think the central banks around the world were trying to somehow experiment on the human population, thinking what would happen if somehow we just say then that your money is not valid now. How would they react? What would be the consequences? I think this this had a they had something beyond what they were actually trying to achieve. They say that they're trying to achieve. I think the World Bank had something to do with the monetization. It's just my feeling, but. Hmm. Well, you had mentioned earlier, and, and you just touched on it again, that, that India, well, for one, we know is one of the most populated countries in the world. But you also said that India has the largest democracy in the world, that they hold the largest elections, and that more people participate in the democratic system in India than anywhere else in the world. And yet we still run into these issues, right, where we have these people in power um, that are enacting legislation that's harmful to people that that impacts their ability to live and live freely and live happily um what do you think that that says about democracy do you does that do you think that that's a problem with the system do you think the system is corrupt or do you think that that says something deeper about the democratic system so i believe the constitution that we have in india is one of the most inclusive constitutions in the world but then again the people that we have to manage these laws are i think corrupt i think there's a definitely a scope of improvement in the systems that can be improved but democracy as a whole i think is a lot better option uh, than communism because we see how it goes for people in china i think they have a very mm. terrible life and i think democracy works far more better Hmm. Yeah, um, I, I think it's very unfortunate. A lot of people in the Western world, they don't understand China. Um, they don't understand because China is very good at um, propagandizing the West. And a lot of people in the West think that China is a very free country and that the people there have, it, have very good lives um, and that they, they don't that the government is is that it, it monitors them, but they, but they still enjoy plenty of freedom. And I think that that's um, a, a really big misunderstanding to have to not understand all of the damages that the communism has caused in China and how much they still uh, affect their people to this day. Yeah, I think a lot of people, uh, I mean, countries around the world think that China is a very progressive country and people living there have got the best of the lives and they have high standards of living, but that is not true until you visit China. So I have my few close friends and someone from my family going to China recently and the way they the they share, the kind of experience that they share about China really horrible, because we have country-wise geographically India stands in the seventh in the global rank, but population-wise it stands second. So we have a geographical difficulty here managing huge populations in a small portion of land. But China, the the same problem for China is beyond that. So I think. Managing population for China has become a huge challenge, huge, huge challenge. And I think they are living in a very small place, a lot of population, and then a government who's almost a dictator, dictatorship government. And everything that it happens in China is taken call by the authorities. You're not able to decide the, which car you'll own, what kind of food you'll have, which school your children will go, how many children you'll have. So I think communism is very horrible for people to live. Yeah, it's difficult. Um, I think especially for for Americans because we can't even we can't even understand what it would be like if the government were to tell you you can have one child, 
Uh, and if you have more than one child and we find out about it, we will come and we'll take, we'll take them. And you know that when they take that child, they're taking them in there and they're having them killed or, you know, best case scenario, they're having them live in a work camp for the rest of their life, uh, as a slave. And, uh, Americans, they've, they've never had to think about something like that. And, and they have nothing to really compare that to. It's almost, it's almost foreign. It's alien. It's an idea that they can't even understand. Um, and you know, I, I remember being younger and, and hearing about people in China who, uh, they would have their first baby. And if it was a girl, a lot of times they would try to kill that girl secretly so that they could try to have another child, um, that they would hope would be a boy so that they could pass on their family legacy. Yeah, that is very scary. And I think especially Americans don't understand how the rest of the countries function. They don't know. I'm sorry to say, but they don't know much about what happens outside of America. They're too busy with the Kardashians and other Hollywood stars, I believe. Hmm. I think you're absolutely right. Yeah. But then again, China has beautifully painted their perception uh, in other countries. So they are also doing a good job at it. Good job at it. And also another thing I want to bring up about China is what they have done to Tibet. They have destroyed Buddhism there, and what they are doing to Dalai Lama. The Dalai Lama currently resides in India, so he currently resides in India in the state called Himachal Pradesh. So Dalai Lama is actually a position, and there is another position called something I don't remember the exact name, but it's called something Lama. So and that guy appoints the next Dalai Lama and Dalai Lama appoints that guy. So there's a cycle which goes on. So the current Dalai Lama that... Hello, can you hear me? Yes, I still hear you. Yeah, so the current Dalai Lama appointed the next position who was supposed to appoint the next Dalai Lama. But then the Chinese government got that kid killed and they appointed their own person at that position. And he'll possibly select the next Dalai Lama who will talk in favor of the Chinese government. But the current Dalai Lama doesn't talk in the favor of Chinese government. So the current Dalai Lama we have will possibly be the last Dalai Lama. Wow. And they have this. Yeah, I, I know. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, sorry. You can continue. Okay. Uh, yeah, I know uh, that the Chinese government also persecutes um, practice, practitioners of uh, Falun Gong. And I don't know a whole lot about. Uh, the specifics of Falun Gong, but I know it's uh, it's sort of a nihilist approach to living, sort of a separation um, from your emotions and from trying to seek happiness in in worldly possessions. Um, a, a Confucianist approach, I think it is. And uh, but the the Chinese government doesn't want their people to be practitioners of Falun Gong, and I know uh, persecutes them quite heavily. And, and this is something that goes all the way back to the communist revolution in China after World War II, where uh, they were pretty much going out and, and you know killing all of the monks in in the mountains of Tibet and and even to this day you know the Tibetans are still very persecuted. They also heavily persecute Christians. Yeah, the Chinese government is also currently treating Islam as a mental disorder, and they have all the Muslims in a camp. And um, in next few days, we'll have something called as the month of Ramadan, where Muslims fast across the world. But the Chinese have banned fasting also. So. Particularly, Chinese is the China is I guess the most horrible place for people who believe in freedom. And interestingly, most of the hash power for Bitcoin and most of the miners come from China because I I believe that they understand how important how important is the financial freedom that Bitcoin will bring for them. Hmm. 
Yeah, I think Bitcoin could be a very powerful tool for the Chinese people if if uh, they are able to find ways to still use it. You know, around like things like the Great Chinese Firewall um, and and the strict control that they have on all of their technology. If they're able to still find ways to use Bitcoin, I think it could be a very very powerful tool for them. Exactly. Um. Yeah, and and real quick, you mentioned the Muslim camps uh, in China, where where they've they've taken all the Muslims in their country and and they've put them in these internment camps. Are they, I hear that they've also called them re-education camps. Mm-hmm. That's that's a really difficult topic uh, to talk about in America because Americans they have. Um, a very particular perception of, of Muslims. And I don't really want to get into that specifically because it's a very touchy issue for the Western world. Um, and, and it's understandable, you know, on, on certain, uh, on certain grounds. And then it's also a little bit abhorrent on other grounds. But uh, I think the, the key issue that I have noticed is that a lot of Americans see that happening in China uh, and they do not condemn it. They do not condemn the fact that the Chinese government um, takes all these Muslims and and places them in these camps and seeks to re-educate them um, because similar things actually happened to America uh, Japanese Americans uh, during World War II where all of the Japanese Americans were placed in these camps because they were not to be trusted and they needed to be re-educated so that they could be reintegrated into American society um, and perhaps you might be able to make some justifications for that but it's also a very 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 thin line uh, between freedom and totalitarianism and if you allow that to go on to one particular group it's very very easy for that to happen to other groups maybe the group that i'm a part of maybe the group that you're a part of Uh, but in reality we should have the freedom to live however we want as long as our actions are not impacting the lives of those around us yeah i strongly believe in the last so you're allowed to follow whatever you want to follow unless and until you're troubling someone else. So you cannot say I am a knife, you don't eat cake. But that is how most of the religions works. This day. So yeah, and uh, about condemning what's happening in China, I don't think anyone in America is saying the fact that Donald Trump has won the elections there despite of making anti-Muslim and minority statements openly shows that uh, not just America, a lot of countries in the world after ISIS and Muslim uh, extremism that happened around the world have turned Islamophobic. And Islamophobic, I, I think a lot of people around the world have a perception to look at, has a very particular perception how they look at Muslims and Islam now. And yeah, that's about it. I guess no one in India also condemned it. In fact, a lot of people who, because the kind of leader that Trump is the current prime minister that we have, Narendra Modi is also very similar. He has also, people from his party has made open statements about minorities. So, yeah, a lot of people support them still because I think they are Islamophobic and they somehow, they will not appreciate it openly, but they are somehow okay with what is being done. I wasn't really expecting to get into this topic, but, you know, living all the way in India, it's, it's interesting that... Uh, my politics in my country can impact uh, the way the rest of the world can look at a particular issue. And and it's really interesting, you know, the world that we live in where we're so interconnected, no matter how far apart we are. Uh, and you can still find people, you know, I can find someone like yourself who lives all the way in India and still thinks the same way uh, I do about a lot of things. I think that that's a really uh, powerful. I think that that says something really powerful about about humanity. Um, that we all sort of have this common thread in our desire to be free, um, free from tyranny, free from totalitarianism. But and I, th- I think it also says a little bit about um, 
the way that the media uh, purports this this narrative all over the world and and tries to make people think a certain way, you know, whether it be about Bitcoin, you know, trying to make people think that that Bitcoin is a scam and that it's going to zero, or about freedom and about the ways that we should live our lives and about the the things that we should be willing to give up to our governments for our own protection. Yeah, I believe uh, one of the most important tool in achieving what you currently describe people from across the globe feeling connected and have. Uh, aware about each other's countries specific politics is the internet and a huge fan of the cyber function i believe that the worldwide web has made it possible for you and me to connect on this personal level so i think we give we should give credit to the internet and the people who made this happen yeah, I love that you brought up the cypherpunks. I think that um one thing that's very unfortunate in Bitcoin is that a lot of people have gotten distracted um by the by the original message of Bitcoin, which was, you know, the cypherpunks who for many years were trying to create this decentralized currency that could be used on the internet freely. Um and you know and and there's all kinds of stuff we could get into there about like the Satoshi talked about and, and some of his predecessors like like Nick Zabo and and Tim May and uh, but the 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 cypherpunks really have a, a very powerful message you know it's it's to build governance to to build alternatives um, to use technology as a way to subvert tyranny uh, and I don't think that that's talked about enough yeah I think a lot of people don't read about the cypherpunks I think. I don't know. I think Max Kaiser, someone tweeted this, which I strongly agree with, that no one should buy Bitcoin before reading about the cypherpunks or the manifesto. So I think that should be there on all the major exchanges. Saying, what are you getting into? There should be a proper educational session. Because a lot of people are getting into Bitcoin just because of price speculation. So I think exchanges need to do something which has to. A lot of exchanges are introducing this. Binance has got Binance Academy, other exchanges are also working on it. But then what they are explaining is a very basic concept, which says what is blockchain and what is Bitcoin. They're giving the dictionary definition, but they have to go beyond it. They have to explain people why Bitcoin started, who are the cypherpunks, what are they using Bitcoin for, how is this a peaceful protest against the dictatorships and governments around the world. They need to educate people about the right things so that people also know what they're getting into. If they don't agree, they don't get in. Hmm. Yeah, it's um, it's sort of it's difficult because you know, on one hand, the exchanges they are financially incentivized by their business model to get as many people into their platform as they can, buying as many different tokens that as they can, because that's how the exchanges make their money. Um, so it's it, it's difficult. I think we see a lot of these exchanges that are quote unquote educating uh, people on cryptocurrencies, but not telling them the whole story. You know, they don't get into the cypherpunks. Um, they don't yeah. get into the liberty movements. They don't get into the the idea that technology can subvert uh, certain authorities, uh, they, they totally sidestep that. And that, that, I love that quote that you mentioned from Max Kaiser, that people should do their homework on the uh, cypherpunks and, and read about the history of Bitcoin before they ever buy any. I think that that would be tremendous for building a stronger uh, core base of people who really understand Bitcoin. This way, when the beer market arrives or there's a fall, you will see a large number of holders if you educate them when they're buying. So you, you, if you, if they're getting it by the purpose of making money, they'll obviously leave when they see they're not able to make money in the short span of time. So by educating them on the beginning, I feel we can also 
uh, increase the number of holders and increase the number of people who believe in Bitcoin. But yeah, I agree to what you said. The business model doesn't allow that. But but still, there are organizations like the Samurai Wallet, which recently uh, removed the option of displaying what your Bitcoin or Satoshi values in dollars and other currencies, which is a bold move, I believe. Yeah, I think uh, I think what it's going to take is more people uh, who have that cypherpunk mindset, who who do understand this. You know, people like you and I, and uh, who who go out and who build products like that wallet you just described that that do bold things just like that that uh, change people's perception, that force them to think about things differently. Yes, I believe a lot of uh, there's a lot of buzz about internet privacy uh, nowadays around the web. So I feel a lot of people who are interested in internet privacy are the kind of people who will be interested in Bitcoin in the future. Because there are alternatives to, people keep building alternatives to Facebook, Google and other internet giants. And the alternatives clearly their USP is just their privacy focus. They don't save data. That's all they got to say. So you have DuckDuckGo and then some other platform who is like Facebook but doesn't store data, doesn't sell your data to advertisers. So there is more and more of people who was learning about privacy on the web. So I think the same kind of people will get involved with Bitcoin in the near future. It's interesting that you bring up privacy. Um, so it seems to me like we're we're heading towards a, a point, a crossroad where we'll have to choose to go down one path or the other with Bitcoin. Because you know, I'm sure as you are aware, uh, Bitcoin is a public ledger, and every transaction on Bitcoin is is recorded forever in the blockchain, and anybody can see that. Um, and if we ever reach a point where, for whatever reason, you're forced to link your identity to any transactions that you've made on the blockchain, uh, suddenly we've gone down a path. Uh, that is very anti-privacy and, and very anti-freedom and, and probably taking us down a road that will lead to somewhere with far more control than we've ever seen before. Uh, does this concern you at all? Well, what do you think about privacy and Bitcoin? What do you think needs to happen there? I think the ledger will always remain public as it was designed to be, but it will always remain anonymous as it was designed to be. So I don't think so you can force users to reveal which Bitcoin addresses they are using. And also, like Satoshi said, we should not use a Bitcoin address for more than one transaction. Mm-hmm. And then there are a lot of uh, Bitcoin wallet options which give you full power to create as many addresses as you want because there is no restriction and there's no limitation to that. So I think privacy is something which will always have in Bitcoin. And I think most of the folks of Bitcoin and other values of Bitcoin will also have that option included. It is one of the basic principles of Bitcoin, at least. So I don't know if you ever heard about this or not, but uh, the Canadian government this past year Mm -hmm. actually came forward to certain participants in cryptocurrency, the people that that the Canadian government had reason to believe had a lot of money in, say, Bitcoin, and actually uh, asked that anybody who was a participant in Bitcoin would come forward with all of their addresses and reveal those addresses uh, to the Canadian government for the purpose of taxes so that the Canadian government could verify uh, that, that participants in Bitcoin weren't trying to evade taxes. What do you think about that? I don't think the government understand how the Bitcoin uh, wallets work. I think they are under the assumption that people will have one or two Bitcoin wallets. Of course, they'll always not reveal all the Bitcoin wallets they have. And there is no way that you can find out how many Bitcoin wallets does a person actually have. 
so if they're doing it for the taxation purpose people will only show them uh, below the tax limit they have bitcoin and other bitcoins can still be lying some other wallet and they'll never be able to figure that out so mm. i don't see if they have given a well thought over what they're trying to achieve by this activity yeah it seems very very unenforceable you know you can prove that you have bitcoin but you could never prove that you don't um so at what point can you be prosecuted for not proving for not showing bitcoin uh when you can't even prove that you don't have it exactly i think most of the people in fact would uh, because of course if they have something like this they must be giving uh giving a clean shit to people who have shown the amount of bitcoin they have and paying taxes so i believe a lot of people will show x amount of bitcoin and pay a small amount small amount of tax and get away with it it will become very easy of course Well, uh, Rahan, I, I'm about out of questions for you. Do you have any other topics that you would want to get into or maybe any other thing about Bitcoin that you'd like to share? Mm. Yeah, I think the whole uh, Bitcoin, not blockchain narrative needs to be pushed a little more. A lot of companies have seen tremendous growth in their uh, stocks just by adding the word blockchain to it. but i don't see blockchain serving a purpose as of now i think the only functional and reasonable blockchain after bitcoin is ethereum which is still trying to figure out a use case for itself so yeah. i definitely agree with you there i think that uh and i get in this conversation with a lot of uh friends that i have you know who i respect uh who who don't fully understand bitcoin especially not as well as they think that they do and they think that blockchain is a, a valuable technology that can be applied outside of bitcoin and i have not seen any technical evidence of that i have not see i still don't see a way uh for blockchain to serve any purpose outside of bitcoin Yeah, I think Ethereum can serve a purpose. Open blockchains can serve a purpose, but the only purpose they serve will be uh, they will be uncensorable. So Ethereum is still looking for use case because I don't think they are creating applications of Ethereum which people will try to stop. They are creating games. They are creating other applications which can be easily created on Amazon servers and on the Microsoft servers. Mm -hmm. They don't need Ethereum blockchain for that. so you only need ethereum blockchain for creating something which someone will try to stop and that's the whole point of it so i don't think so we have seen any such application as of now but i am positive that in the future we'll see something coming from the ethereum blockchain will people will try to stop and at that time we'll also see how powerful the blockchain is hmm. yeah i think that that's a really good point um Yeah, I'm not a big fan of Ethereum myself. I think that it's it's very misleading and and just recently Ethereum has sort of shifted its tone to being the decentralized application platform to Ethereum is money. Ethereum is a financial platform. Ethereum is where we're building, you know, the next uh the next generation of finance. And I think that that's very deceptive uh that they've made that change now. uh here in the in the depths of the bear market right at the bottom as we're starting to move our way up ethereum is changing their message they're trying to now say that they are trying to be money uh which all along bitcoin has been the one that's been the best money and it still is and it probably always will be uh and ethereum's claim to fame was well we're not trying to be money we're a decentralized application platform uh now that they've changed their narrative uh i am quite comfortable in calling ethereum an outright scam Uh, I am not aware about the recent change in the narrative, but I don't 
think so why would they get in a competition directly with bitcoin because they know that will be directly uh, people will just like you did people will directly call out them for being a scam because they were calling themselves uh, application platform as long as they started and yeah even i am not a big fan of ethereum but yeah still uh, the idea of open blockchains and uncensorable content uh, is is of my interest because i see a lot of censorship happening on the platforms that we currently have the governments the corporations can censor content different kind of content that you like so i think blockchains open blockchains can play a role in creating uncensorable content but that's all they can do i don't think so they can provide a financial option and the recent shift in ethereum's narrative is something that i'm completely unaware of and i'll have to look up to it but if that's the case i i think most of the people in the bitcoin community will call them out yeah i think you made a good point there um i think it was china actually where they had uh, a whole lot of deaths from vaccines and the government had tried to cover up uh the fact that that had happened and the only reason that it was able to actually make its way out of the country was because someone encoded that message into the ethereum blockchain i'm aware about that but i think there are a lot of things that internet is a very powerful tool and i i've heard about people uh sending uh information to uh, korean uh, the korea where they send very powerful information via blockchain about the recent affairs that are going on around the world on international politics so yeah that is something that countries who have heavy censorship can rely on so that is very interesting hmm. all right well rahan do you have any more uh, any more points that you'd like to make or any parting words for the listeners no i think that's about it yeah i think uh, the most important thing i feel that we have to do as a as a whole as a community to bring bitcoin to more and more people is to educate them a lot of people will get into bitcoin during the bull run and the people who get into bitcoin during the bull run the people will leave bitcoin but the people who get into bitcoin in the bear market are the people who will stay so we have to get more and more people during this bear market which is the this is the time that we get to educate more people while the developers and other people who can code can create stuff and create applications around bitcoin but from my point of view i cannot code i cannot create applications i what i can do is i can educate people so i do my best in creating more and more awareness about bitcoin throughout my network and that's something that i'll want and expect others to That's yeah, I 100% agree. Yeah, I think people they need to understand the truth. Um they need more of the good knowledge that that uh, that we have and we need to share it with them. And that's that's part of the reason that I have this podcast because I want to help educate people. I want them to understand the real uh the real things that are going on in Bitcoin and not be distracted uh by all the nonsense because there is an awful lot of nonsense and and I could I could see that uh in in crypto and I even went through it myself and that's exactly why I made this podcast and that's why I have uh people like yourself on Rahan so uh thanks so much for coming on man I I've really enjoyed this conversation where can people find you if they want to uh follow you and keep up with you Yeah so people can find me on Twitter my username is @rahanfkureshi and yeah thank you so much for the opportunity man and huge respect for you for doing what you're doing yeah that's about it
Absolutely. And I will put a link to your Twitter uh, down in the show notes so anybody can can click on that and follow you there if they want. All right, Rahan, this was great, man. I will uh, hopefully talk to you again sometime. Yeah, thank you so much. Bye. Have a nice day. All right, guys, welcome back. I hope that that wasn't too tough for you to understand. I think Rahan and I had a really great conversation. I really enjoyed it. I think that we covered a lot of important topics. I got to get a lot of really interesting perspectives, you know, from him on India and Bitcoin, and hopefully you enjoyed it and found it as valuable as I did. If you guys want to find more out about the Bitcoin Echo Chamber, you can find us over at BitcoinEchoChamber.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at HeavilyArmedC. That's the letter C. You can find all of our episodes over at uh, Bitcoin Echo Chamber. I also post them on my Twitter, and you can find them on any of your favorite podcasting services, whether that be Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean. There's a whole bunch of them. Thanks for sticking with me, guys. If you like the show, please give it a like, thumbs up, star, whatever, subscribe. I appreciate all that so much, and I appreciate all the people who are supporting this show and who are giving me great feedback. I love you guys, and uh, I love doing this show. See you next week.